Hola, bienvenidos. Welcome to the Learn Spanish Con Salsa podcast. I'm your host, Tamara Marie. Before we get started with this episode, I have a quick question for you. What are you doing to improve your Spanish this summer? Summer is a time for vacations, for getting away, and you might even be planning on visiting a Spanish-speaking country. So it is the perfect time to improve your conversational skills because let's face it, if you've been learning Spanish for any length of time and you haven't been having regular conversations, you are going to fall behind. So this summer, we are not gonna let you do that. Here at Spanish Con Salsa, we are offering a summer boot camp. This is an eight-week boot camp that will focus on Caribbean Spanish and also Spanish grammar. So we're gonna be looking specifically at the past tense. A lot of people get confused between el imperfecto, el preterito, when do I use which one? And we're also gonna be exploring the Caribbean with Puerto Rican Spanish, Cuban Spanish, and Dominican Spanish. So you will have an opportunity opportunity to improve your Spanish and you'll also be able to attend regular conversation practice sessions facilitated by a native speaker all as a part of our Spanish fluency club this summer so if you are interested go to spanishconsalsa.com slash summer that's spanishconsalsa.com slash summer Registration is open now through Sunday. We have limited spots available. So if you're interested, I encourage you to press pause now before you listen to this episode. Scroll down to the description and click on the link or just go to SpanishConSalsa.com slash summer. Hope to see you in the boot camp. Now let's get started with this week's episode. Bienvenidos. Welcome to the Learn Spanish Con Salsa podcast, the show for Spanish learners that love music, travel, and culture. Close your grammar textbooks, shut down the language apps, and open your ears to how Spanish is spoken in the real world. Let us show you how to go from beginner to bilingual. Here is your host, certified language coach, Tamara Marie. Hola, mi gente. Bienvenidos. Welcome to episode 10 of the Learn Spanish Con Salsa podcast. In this episode, we're going to chat with Tracy and Devin Benton from Conocer Cuba. They promote cooperative, low-impact, sustainable travel to Cuba by developing travel experiences in cooperation with Cuban citizens. They're going to share with us what you can expect when visiting Cuba, especially if you're traveling from the U.S. and are a little uncertain about the travel requirements. Now, they're also going to tell us about some must-see Cuban attractions to experience the real Cuba. So make sure you stay tuned so you can add these to your travel bucket list. And with that, vamos a empezar. Let's get started. Hola, Tracy and Devin. Bienvenidos. Thank you for joining me on the Learn Spanish Con Salsa podcast. We're really excited to be here. Thank you so much for inviting us. Yeah, thank you for having us. Can you start off by just telling us a little bit about Conocer Cuba and what made you get started with the company? Devin has been running trips for student groups for over 10 years, you know, prior to 2016 when Conocer Cuba started. And so she'd run trips for several groups at UNCC, UNC Chapel Hill, at Harvard, at Williams College, Williams College at Louisiana State University. So she'd been taking students to Havana, to Cuba for, you know, well over 10 years. And so we decided that it would be uh, beneficial for us to start up our own business to take more people who are interested in not just students. And so in March of 2016, we you know got started with our business. And since then, we've been taking travel groups of anywhere between, you know, 10 and 15 travelers in the winter for New Year's and also for a trip in the summer. And the trips range anywhere from four days 
to seven days to all the way up to 10 days. And one of the things that happened was we had a lot of friends and family members who said, we would love to travel to Cuba, but we don't know anything about Cuba. It seems sort of scary, but we would love to go, but we would only go with you. And so students, people would always say, well, when are you taking another group? But my groups were always only open to students. So being able to say, now we can offer groups to professionals, to adults, to just anybody of all ages became something that was really important for Honosec And what's unique about our model is that we promote a cooperative, low-impact, sustainable travel to Cuba by developing these experiences along with the Cuban people. And so we don't work through any sort of large tour groups or, or tour agencies. We are our own standalone agency in which we work with individuals who have individuals who have homes on the island, and we have a local guy that we hire individually. And so more of the revenue goes to the people, and we work along with community groups on the island to offer um, really uh, personalized experiences for our travel. Very cool. And um, you mentioned something I want to touch on a little bit, because I know when I went to Cuba and I had the pleasure of attending um, a trip with you all on the New Year's trip in winter, and it was a really great experience. I was really impressed by all the things you did to really integrate into the island and the culture and not just sort of visit just like the regular sort of quote unquote tourist sites, but really giving us a unique experience. I really did um, appreciate that, um, having that perspective and being able to travel in an authentic way. But I know when I went to Cuba, when people found out I was going, they kept asking me like, are you sure you want to go to Cuba? (laughs) Like even when I came back to the U.S., they were still asking, like, are you sure you can get back in the country? And I was like, well, I'm here. I mean, I made it back, right? So there is a real concern about the current political climate. So for anyone that may be thinking about traveling to Cuba from the U.S., is there anything they have to be concerned about? Or what would you say they have to make sure they have an order before they consider taking a trip? This is a great question. In some ways, U.S. policy to Cuba has changed a lot over the 60 years of the embargo, because what happened is initially we have a travel embargo to Cuba. We have a trade embargo with Cuba, which meant that individuals weren't allowed to travel. And initially they opened it up so that only people who went could go under 12 different parts of the license. So you could go if you were a student doing the study abroad program. You could go if you were a journalist. You could go if you were a religious organization doing mission work. So there were some things like that. I think what happened with Obama when Obama was the president is that he really sort of took the trade and the travel embargo and he made it a little bit more flexible. He opened it up to say that we really want to promote what he calls people-to-people travel. This idea that having Cubans and Americans talk to each other would help everybody sort of move forward. And so he really took those ideas and said, okay, if you want to go, you can say that you're doing people-to-people travel and you can go. I think what has scared a lot of people about going to Cuba is that since President Trump has become president, that he went back and changed us. In some ways, he tried to reverse the Obama opportunities and the openings that Obama had done, which meant that he made it a little bit more difficult. However, it is still not illegal for you to go. The way that the license in OFAC has written it now is that everyone needs to go with a tour organization that will be in charge of your itinerary. Mainly, this is so that, one, Americans aren't spending money in places that are on the prohibited list, and those are mostly places affiliated with the military, and so that also that people are not just down there, like, having a lot of fun. It's actually, you know, not having a lot of fun, but, like, sort of just doing your typical sort of tourism. It's supposed to be a people-to-people to encourage engagement between the two countries. So we are, you don't have to be a licensed tour operator anymore. That hasn't changed. But you have to go with some organization that can be responsible for your itinerary and to make sure that you're doing things that you're allowed to do. So traveling with Conocer Cuba allows you to do that. Traveling with any other travel agency is at the same time. So it is still completely available. You're not going to get into any legal trouble. And you want to travel with some type of group that will make sure that you're staying in the right places and spending your money with U.S. laws and regulations. 
Yeah, and that's really important. I'm glad you touched on that because it really is important to go with a group or folks that really can tell you how to navigate and what to do and what not to do. I know when I went with you all, I did. you gave me the itinerary. I had no problems getting through the airport or customs immigration or anything like that. So that all went well. And I have had some friends, unfortunately, tell me, oh, you know, just go through Mexico or like try to fly in through, come through another country. And I definitely wouldn't recommend that, especially now, you know, I would definitely recommend, like you said, to go with a travel company so that you don't have any issues. So if you're thinking about trying to like, you know, come through the border in a different way or come through a different country, I would, you know, advise against that. And like Devin said, go with a group that is established and can really help you navigate the country. I love to travel and mainly because of the experiences that I have when I travel and the people that I get to meet. But I will say that I don't like going to stay in fancy resorts and having what I call like a sheltered experience where you really don't get to interact with people that actually live in the country. And I know with the people to people license that you talked about, you sort of forced as a U.S. citizen to have that kind of authentic experience when you go to Cuba. Now, I like to go to some of the places that the locals go or get a feel for what life is really like in the country when I travel. So can you share with us some of the places in Cuba that you would definitely recommend that people go and kind of why you would recommend those places to visit? Pretty typical itinerary when we have first-time travelers who go to Havana. We think it's very important to understand the context of Havana, the way in which we, our imagination has taught us to think about Cuba in so many ways being raised here in the U.S. is often not in line with the way Cuba is. You know, we see it through a lens in which we've learned things that, are, that might not be the most in line with the way that Cuba is now. So we have several spots that we take individuals to during our trip. We explain the history, the political system, the, the economy and about how things work so that individual who's traveled there, travel there can get a sense of how Cuba is and understand what they see and why they see it. And so one of the first places that we often take our travelers on either the first or second day in being on the island is to visit the Plaza de Revolución. Going to the Plaza de Revolución, we take people there because we see it as the center of Cuban politics, right? Right there when you're in the plaza, you can see the Ministry of Interior, you can see the Ministry of Agriculture, you can see the Ministry of Communication. But our local guide also uses as a moment to talk to our visitors about what does it mean, what role do mass mobilizations play in Cuban history and even the contemporary moment. Because this huge square is also the same space that Cubans come for every May Day, right? So for every workers, May 1st, every time that there is a parade, all Cubans from across Havana are marching through. It's the same place that the Pope, when both of the Popes that have visited Cuba came and held mass, they held mass in the Plaza de Revolución. So he's able to talk about that religious opening that happens in Cuba and what does it mean for thousands upon thousands of Cubans to come and hold mass with the Pope in Plaza de Revolución. It's the space where Fidel Castro gave some of his most iconic speeches and he'd be up there for, you know, five to six hours talking about the different ways that Cuba was going to stand up against imperialism and really be a force to be reckoned with. So I think even though I think most people like to go to the Plaza de Revolución, we want people to go and understand its meaning for both Cuban history and Cuba in the contemporary moment. Like, what does it mean to mobilize the people to fight for their sovereignty? Right, and we also continue on that same day to visit the old Havana, Havana Vieja. And that is a restored area of Havana where, you know, travelers can see what used to be like sort of the center, the, the beginnings of Cuba as, as a populated area, and so there's a lot of old colonial buildings, historic sites, and places that represent you know the history of Cuba. And so we like to take people from the Plaza de Revolución to Old Havana so they can experience and see and understand the history and the, and the context of Cuba. Another place that we often take individuals to visit is a cultural spot called the Museo de Bellas Artes. 
And this is one of my favorite places in all of Havana. Like, I sort of make it sort of, either it's on the itinerary, it's one of the places when I say, if you have free time, you have to go to the Museo de Bellas Artes. Mainly because, first of all, there are two sides. There is sort of the world global side of the museum, but there's also the Cuban art side. And so I think the Cuban art side is really important because it allows you to sort of see an evolution of Cuban art. And given that we've already had conversations about Cuban history and Cuban politics, you can see how artists have visualized and imagined how they would represent that throughout from the colonial period all the way to the present. And some of the pieces that come out of the 1960s and 70s of the early revolutionary art are just incredible because you can see how they inspire. They also have a number of Wilfredo Lamb pieces and we, Wilfredo Lamb is an Afro-Cuban, Chinese Cuban. And so his work is very much inspired by Picasso and just looks incredible. And, you know, to see those up close and personal and to see like real pieces from him is also another sort of really one of the joys of that music. Great. So that, if you're going for a four-day trip, those are three great places that you need to go. Spend your time. You can arrive on one day, spend the next two days doing the tour of Havana. I think Havana is enough for a short four-day trip. Now, if you're there, you know, if the travelers are there for longer, and this also goes along with our seven-day trip, we try to take, or we do take our travelers outside of Havana so they can see rural Cuba. And one of the places that we take all of our travelers on the longer trips is Las Terrazas and Vinales. And we do this because this is rural Cuba. You know, it's a different life outside of Havana. It's less populated. And there's, you see more of the countryside. And there's also a great place called Las Terrazas that is UNESCO. Well, it's an ecotourism area. Right. So it's a place that in many ways has been developed so that you can see what does environmentally friendly tourism look like? What does it look like to see an area that was actually very much sort of unpopulated and deforested before the 1959 revolution? And to see how the state really worked to replant trees to bring people in to live in this village, to, to build some of the first schools and hospitals in this area, and that that became a success of the revolution in some ways. And then what they did was then they shifted that in the 90s to become an ecotourism to show people what environmental tourism might look like. And part of this, this same sort of trip, we take individuals to a tobacco farm. So we know the Cuban cigars is what people talk about, like the old car, the cigars. And so we want our travelers to understand the, the role that you know tobacco farmers play in the larger sort of economy. And that so how do the local tobacco farmers contribute to the economy, the place tobacco has had in the history and the, the historical economy, and also contemporarily how tobacco farmers live, you know, how tobacco was grown. We visit a drying house. We see someone roll cigars. And so travelers get to know not just for the, the lore of the Cuban cigar, but how they're actually produced and made and what role it plays in the Cuban economy. And I know everyone's probably wondering, so can U.S. citizens bring back some cigars now, some Cuban cigars? <laughs> or is that is that prohibited? Yes, you can now bring back both Cuban cigars and Cuban rum from Cuba. Ah, okay. All right. Very good. So anyone who's wondering, um, can they get some Cuban cigars? Yes, but I think there are some limits on that. You can't bring back, you know, 100 cases and, and start selling them. <laughs> suitcase full. I think my memory serves is that I think it's $100 sort of total. Or usually most people can bring back one box of cigars. And then you can also bring back some of the artisanal cigars that you might get from, say, a tobacco farm or from a, a buying directly from a farmer. Definitely take advantage of that if you go. Okay, so you've told us about Plaza de Revolución in Havana, visiting Havana Vieja, the Museo de Bellas Artes, and ecotourism in Viñales and in, in Las Teresas. So what's the last place that you would recommend if you have a little bit more than four days to spend in Cuba? Give us a, one more or just a couple more places that you, know, that you have to visit when you go. 
So one is you definitely need to go to the beach, right? The beaches in the Caribbean are some of the most beautiful beaches in the whole world. I'm from North Carolina. I grew up going to the beach on the Atlantic. It is nothing like that to go to the Caribbean Sea. So you definitely, but most people think that they have to go to Varadero or one of the more sort of famous beach tourist sites. We actually like to, or sort of all-inclusive sites. We actually usually encourage people to go to Santa Maria Beach, which is a part of Playas del Este, um, beaches to the east, because that is a space where you can see more local tourists. Like if you go out to Playa del Este on a weekend, you're going to see just as many Cubans as you're going to see foreigners. And everyone, like there's music playing and like there's vendors coming around selling street food and, you know, rum and coconuts. And like, it's just, everybody's having a really, really good time. So I both like it for getting to see the beautiful Caribbean waters, but I also like it for getting to see what does local tourism look like? What do Cubans do on the weekend, especially in the summertime when they literally pack up their whole family and a whole bunch of food and a whole bunch of music and drinks and just have a great time. So that's on the list. But the other one is actually spending time meeting and talking to Cupid, right? So that's not in a particular location, but one of the ways we do that in our itineraries is through a meeting with the community group Proyecto Esperal. The meeting with Proyecto Esperal is just so important because it's a group that's a combination of sort of Cuban professionals and students. They do work both in with young people to help them think about what does it mean to create a sustainable environment in Cuba, as well as with elderly people. They're always raising or collecting donations so that they can help people out in their everyday lives. But what we have, what happens when we have this exchange is it's a moment really for that people-to-people engagement, is that we bring North American travelers who sit down with Cubans and they talk about all the tough questions. Like, do you believe in the embargo? Why does the United States call it an embargo and Cubans call it a blockade, a bloqueo, right? Why is it that, how do you feel about Cuban Americans? What do you think about travel to the United States? Do you want Americans to come to Cuba? They are willing to answer all of the really tough questions that most Americans think that Cubans won't answer because of censorship. And instead, we sit there with just regular, everyday people, and they talk about their lives and their hopes for the future, for themselves, for their country, for the relationships that they're developing with the Americans in our group. Most interesting about Proyecto Espiral is their philosophy. So in, in comparing it to philosophy of, so say, you know, service work here in, in the States, which, you know, we're all familiar with in terms of what we do for communities, their particular Proyecto Esperado, their philosophy is that by doing the work for communities, with communities, it's for the benefit of the one who's participating in the service work. Now, this is an idea that, you know, myself, I, I've come to sort of think a lot about in terms of what it means to do service. And for Proyecto Esperado, it's more of, We are a community of individuals, and we're not doing charity work for others, but we're doing charity work for ourselves. By making others better, we then make ourselves better. And so I think that particular philosophy is very important, especially for foreigners who may not understand the way service works, not just in Cuba, but among this particular group, and how this philosophy is sort of personified through the way in which Cuba sees itself as a very unified community in terms of their history and the revolution and the way they still think of themselves as a very strong people. And that had this internal sense of national pride, regardless of whatever sort of outside media may be saying about the particular country and what we call a dictatorship, what they see as something that's more of a liberation of an entire people. Yeah, you know, and that's one of the things that really struck me about visiting Cuba. I had some really interesting conversations. I definitely encourage anyone who's thinking about visiting to go and have your own experience, get to talk to the people and form your own opinion. I had my own perception before I visited, and in the U.S., we really don't have a lot of information and not a lot of good information. So it can be sometimes difficult to get past that, you know, stereotype of, you know, we just think about Castro, we think about looking at the old vintage cars, but Cuba is so much more than that. And I did find 
that people are just proud to be Cuban. Um, and it was something that was infectious, like the spirit of just being proud to be Cuban. Now, switching topics just a little bit, I want to talk a little bit about the language. So another thing I've heard from some people in, in the Spanish consulsa community that they're learning Spanish uh, and they may have visited Cuba before for vacation or holiday, as they call it across the pond. <laughs> But they get really excited about being able to practice their Spanish during their trip. But they're surprised when they try to talk to people and sometimes they have a hard time following what's being said. So, Devin, I want to ask you, what do you think it is about Cuban Spanish that makes it hard for some Spanish learners to understand? That is definitely something that I've experienced. I've been traveling to Cuba since 2003, and the first time that I went, I also had a hard time understanding Cubans. I don't think it's just Cuba. I do think that across the Caribbean, Spanish is spoken somewhat differently in the ways that most people in the United States learn it. So in the United States, we often learn sort of Spanish either from textbooks that are sort of emphasizing like Spanish from Spain, right? Using those particular grammar configurations like vos, right? Like I have never used vosotros or vos or anything like that in Cuba ever. But that was certainly something that I was taught when I was learning to speak Spanish. The other thing is Spanish in Cuba is very rapid. It's fast. A lot of times there are consonants that are dropped and there's a lot of slang that's internal to the island. So I think that is something that's typical lots of places. But if you grew up either taking classes or learning Spanish that is generated from in Spain or in Mexico, that's going to be a whole different set of sort of rules, regulations, slang, sort of everyday colloquialism than you might find in Cuba and even in the rest of the Caribbean. And I'd like to add to that, being a, a non-Spanish speaker the first time that I went to Cuba in 2003, I mean, it was one, I, I spoke a bit of French, but I didn't be, speak very much Spanish. So it was hard for me to pick it up. But after going over the course of years, I found that my Spanish has improved to the much where it's not so much, kind of, I've never taken a formal class in terms of in the United States for Spanish, but by going so much, I've learned to, to become accustomed to the dialect that's spoken on the island in so much so that when we go to Mexico, I find that my comprehension is, is amazing <laughs> because I've started learning Cuban Spanish. And when I, when I get to other slower dialects, dialects where they pronounce, enunciate a little bit more than, than in Cuban Spanish, I find that my comprehension is far, far better than I thought it had been just by, you know, interacting with those who speak more of the dialects spoken in Cuba. Yeah, and I always tell people, if you can understand a Spanish speaker from either Cuba or Dominican Republic or Puerto Rico, then you can probably understand a Spanish speaker from anywhere. <laughs> Because like you said, Devin, the Caribbean Spanish is a little bit different. They do tend to speak fast and cut off some letters of words. So I always tell people that. So Tracy, you've proven my point. <laughs> so um, Devin, just a little bit about your experience learning Spanish. Could you mention sort of learning in the U.S.? And I had a similar experience as you, sort of learning from textbooks and then being shocked when I actually started traveling and talking to people and realizing, you know, no one's saying, hola, como esta usted? Right? Like that doesn't happen. So can you talk a little bit about how you learned Spanish and what sparked your interest in the language in the first place? This is a great question. I, um, I started learning Spanish in the seventh grade. I was part of the International Baccalaureate Program. So I did pre-IB through middle school and then through high school. And you had to take a language every year. That was a part of the sort of global or international perspective that that program allowed you to have. And then when I went to college, I also, um, I was looking around for a major for quite a while. And that is a whole other story. But let's just say that the other majors didn't work out. There was something about failing statistics that I was required to get into the business school. There were a couple of other majors that didn't work out. And so I ended up majoring in Spanish as well in undergrad. And so I was a Spanish international studies double major. So I learned Spanish mostly through books, through classes, through, you know, 
that was back. We still had cassette tapes and language labs. I'm not even sure if they have language labs anymore. Wow. You're dating yourself. Um, <laughs> you go to the language lab and listen to the cassette tape. So I did all of that, but I didn't actually study or travel abroad to speak Spanish until I went to Guatemala for the first time as a sophomore in college. And then again, the summer before my senior year. And both times I was, that was the first time that I'd done immersion. So homestay, living with a family in um, Antigua and Shela in Guatemala. And what would you say through all your experience was the most effective language learning strategy? So if you can give us a specific example of something that you did and what kind of improvement you noticed in your Spanish. It was 100%. It was the immersion. It had to like, so, and I think some people may be really good at learning out of books. I don't think that was my strength. So I didn't feel like I actually mastered conversational Spanish until I was actually in the country. I could read in Spanish. I could write in Spanish, but I don't think I had the confidence really to speak in Spanish until I got to Guatemala. And then I'm in a homestay all by myself. My family doesn't speak English. I have to speak Spanish with them. And that is one of the things that sort of forced me to come out of my shell and start trying things out. And then later, the same thing happened in Cuba. I mean, because I do research in Cuba as well, my first book is about Cuba. I did oral histories. And when you're sitting down doing oral histories, remember, if you're going to do oral histories, I study the 1960s. I'm talking mostly to senior citizens. I'm talking to people, the tercer edad, as I like to say in Cuba, right? The third age. So I'm talking to old people who have a different pronunciation, maybe have dentures, so on and so forth. You know how it is talking to your grandparents. And like, that was something where I really had to sit there and I learned how to listen and I learned how to speak clearly. And it just became a part of the process, really talking to people. I would say, if you're trying to learn a language, you have to go out and talk to people and stumble through the things that you want to say and figure out what other people are saying. Yeah, I think you also touched on sort of creating a need, right? So when you were at your homestay, you really didn't have a choice but to speak Spanish. And you also, during your research, you had to sort of connect with these folks and talk to them. So I think also um, what I noticed in a common thread in what you talked about is just creating that need for yourself to actually have to use the language. Yeah, I think that's very important for the, the reluctant Spanish speaker. And so I would consider myself still be the reluctant Spanish speaker. And traveling with someone who speaks Spanish, I think that I often rely on Devin as a crutch, opposed to when she's busy and I have to actually go shop or, you know, go to a restaurant or go and ask directions. And so I think for the Spanish speakers who don't yet feel very confident in speaking, I think it's important to make that bold move and spend a half a day just walking around. And people are more generous, especially even in Cuba. I mean, everywhere, more generous in terms of your limited Spanish than even in my mind, my mental block of, you know, people aren't going to understand me and I get more afraid about speaking than when I actually do speak and I get a word wrong, they don't necessarily jump out and correct me. And so I think for those Spanish speakers who are still more reluctant to speak, myself included, I find that spending the day by myself and going out and doing things has helped my Spanish far more than relying on a Spanish speaker who speaks better than me as a crutch. Can you tell us about one of your most embarrassing moments when learning Spanish, whether it's something funny that you said or something you misunderstood? Um, because I think that making mistakes is really important in language learning as well. I mean, you can't be afraid to make mistakes because if you don't get out there and practice and try, you're never going to get better. So I always like to ask folks to share with us one of their embarrassing moments or a funny story just to kind of let everyone know that this happens to everyone learning Spanish. It's something we have to get through. So if you guys wouldn't mind sharing um, a story with us. It happened our very first trip <laughs> and we were in Yaguahai, which is a really small town in north central Cuba. 
and we were staying at um, a friend's, my advisor had friends there. So my advisor sent us there and we're staying at a friend of my advisor's house. So of course we're trying to be extra respectful and I'm trying to, you know, demonstrate that I know things and I don't know, I'm just trying to make a good impression. And so one of the things is that our host family says is she says to us, she's like, oh, you know, just be careful tonight because they're ranas. Right. R-A-N-A-S. Ranas. And I was like, oh, the Ranas. OK. And so Tracy's like, Devin, what did she say? And I said, don't worry, Tracy. She said that there were rats. <laughs> there were rats. And therefore, we could sleep with the window open. It's no big deal because, you know, rats aren't going to come up climbing through the window. We sleep with the window open. <laughs> and around 2 a.m., a frog jumps in. <laughs> Because Rana means frog, not rat. Kevin, <laughs> like, what's happening? I'm like, oh my god. Yeah, and so we, of course, we didn't catch the Rana. Um, we had to run out and get our host family, and they said, they, they said, oh, we told you about. <laughs> like, no frogs. <laughs> And I always do say, too, that those embarrassing moments or those mistakes are the things that you never forget, right? Because, like, once that, once you have an experience where there's a frog jumping on you, you're not going to forget the word for frog. <laughs> well, thank you guys for sharing that. Um, so, okay, now it's time for our quick fire round where I'm going to ask you five questions in Espanol. So, ¿listos? Sí. Okay. Pregunta número uno. ¿Cuál es tu canción favorita en Espanol? Eso no es muy fácil para mí porque... De verdad, no me gustan mucho las canciones en inglés ni en español. Yo pienso que yo soy una persona que me gusta más la política, la historia, pero me gustan mucho dos canciones. Bésame. Bésame mucho. Uh -huh. Like, so kiss me once. So. Sí, ah, bésame mucho. Y la canción Despacito. Número dos. ¿Cuál es tu palabra favorita en español? Yo pienso que todo el mundo se usa dale en Havana para, para decir, sí, vámonos a hacer algo, dale, dale. O sí, está bien, dale, dale. Y también en la música, porque dicen todo el tiempo, dale, dale. Es como, come on, o go ahead. Um, ok, pregunta número tres. ¿Cuál fue la última cosa que leíste, miraste o escuchaste en español? Yo leí una, un libro sobre, no, no es libro, un artículo sobre la feminismo negra en Havana y este una de mis amigas colegas Daisy Riviera y es sobre el desarrollo del movimiento feminismo negra en Havana ah, es, un, es un tema muy interesante y número cuatro saca tu teléfono y traduce el último texto que recibiste en el español uh, mi último texto es de una amiga me mandó un texto que dice que ella no puede venir a la casa de nosotros para una fiesta este fin de semana porque ella va a estar en Baltimore para un evento. Y yo escribí, ah, qué lástima, vamos a extrañarte. Tenemos a encontrar un tiempo para pasar tiempo juntos antes de las vacaciones de Navidad. Ah, qué bueno, muy bien. Y número cinco, ahora una pregunta al azar. Ok, si no tuvieras que dormir, ¿qué harías con el tiempo adicional? Ah, yo sé. Yo quiero aprender Haitian Creole. Ah, quiero... otro idioma. Ok. Y para mí, aprender idiomas no es fácil. Entonces, <ríe> como yo dije antes, desde cuando yo tenía 12 años, yo tuve todo ese tiempo para aprender español. Entonces, yo sé que yo necesito mucho tiempo <ríe> para aprender <ríe> otro idioma, pero yo tengo ganas mucho, mucho, mucho para aprender uh, Haitian Creole. ¿Y por qué ese idioma? 
Es porque que ahora yo tengo un interés a escribir un libro sobre la conciencia negra en el Caribe, más grande que Cuba. Entonces, antes yo solamente había trabajado en Cuba, pero yo quiero aprender Haitian Creole para que yo pueda leer y hablar con intelectuales um, haitianos sobre sus experiencias en Cuba, sobre sus experiencias con la revolución, sobre sus experiencias de, con la negritud. Oh, muy interesante. Entonces, gracias, Devin. Uh, thank you for participating in the quick fire round. Now, as we wrap up, do you guys have anything coming up that you want to let everyone know about? If anyone is interested in possibly learning more about our trips, the detail of the itineraries, how much it costs, they can visit us at www.conocercubatravel.com. That's our website. And we're also available on Facebook. And so the best place to find us in Facebook because we update that page a little bit more often. And so we welcome anyone to, you know, check us out. Um, send us an email if you're interested. And also, if you mention that you heard us on this podcast, we can offer you a 10% discount to you and whoever you bring along with you as a traveler. Thank you. That um, is very generous. And I'm sure everyone will enjoy um, being able to save a little bit of money and also go to Cuba at the same time. Um, and I will include a link to Conocer Cuba's website and their Facebook page in the show notes. So if you're interested, definitely check out the show notes at LearnSpanishConSalsa.com forward slash 10. That's LearnSpanishConSalsa.com forward slash 10 for episode 10 of the podcast. And you'll be able to find links to everything we talked about in this episode, as well as how to check out Commissaire Cuba's upcoming uh, summer excursion to Havana. Thank you so much, Devin and Tracy, for taking the time to join us on the Learn Spanish Con Salsa podcast. Thank you so much for having us. This was a lot of fun. This episode of Learn Spanish Con Salsa is brought to you by our partner, italki, the effective, fastest way to become fluent in a foreign language. You'll make more progress with one-on-one -on -one lessons customized for your learning style and goals. You can take lessons from anywhere at a time that is convenient for you. Connect with people from around the world, learn the real language, and learn how people really speak. Get started today and get a free $10 credit with your first lesson purchase. Just visit go.italki.com slash Spanish con salsa. That's go.italki.com slash Spanish con salsa. For listening to the Learn Spanish Con Salsa podcast at LearnSpanishConSalsa.com.